we've been asking this question, what does it mean to put Jesus at the center of our lives and how do we live with him at the center? And we started with this focus on our identity, recognizing that that question of who we are and um, who I am and whether I'm valued or loved, how we answer that question is core and fundamental to everything else that we do and live. And so to go to the heart of that question is the right place to start. We will unpick some other things in the future. But what I want to look at this morning is this idea that at the core of who you are, according to the biblical story, the story we read in the Bible, you are loved. Which I know you know, as I've said, but I want to focus in on that for a moment. You are the beloved. And we were created, according to the story in the scripture, you can read it in Genesis, we were created in love by a God of love, for love. In the beginning, we were created in the image of God and we were created for deep communion with God and each other. We were created in love. And so our reference point for identity is not only our creator, we looked at that over the last couple of weeks, but also his love towards us. That's like ground zero or due north for who we are. St. Augustine says this, he says, God loves each one of us, each one of you, as, as if there was only one of you to love, one of us to love. So if you were the only person his love would be towards you. I love what Thomas Merton says in Seeds of Contemplation. He says, to say that I am made in the image of God. That's what we've been looking at together, this identity question. To say that we are made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. Love is the reason that I am here. For God is love. Love is my true identity. Love is my true character. Love is my name. And God's love is not like our love. It's a loyal love. The the Hebrew word is this word hesed. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's faithful, enduring, unrelenting love. It's a love that's actually experienced by us, by humanity, through trust so it is a covenant kind of love it is in and through relationship it's marked and experienced by trust it's a loyal love it's a deep love and it works in a experience of relationship that's the first thing god's love is not like ours it's a a self-giving kind of love The, the word in greek is agape you've probably heard it before but it's a love that is focused not on ourself but on the other it's a love that wills, the, agape means wills the good of another ahead of, my, ahead of myself, no matter what the cost. So God's love, not only is it loyal, enduring, everlasting, has said, but it is self-giving, other focused on the person in front of us, not on ourselves. And for us to, to return to this true north, to the sense of who we are, to answer this question we've been asking together, who am I really? To return to this identity as the beloved, we need to return to his love for us. For humanity, love for God and worship are inseparable. And I'm going to talk about these two things just for a moment with us. When we talk about love, because it's a covenant love, because it's a love that is loyal and experienced through relationship that's based on mutual trust, it's also about worship. And so our love for God and our worship for him are together. They're inseparable. My love is worship. My worship is love. The two go hand in hand. For me to love God is to see him as he is and to give him the due that he deserves. And so my love is my worship. 
They're inseparable. And our love is expressed for God through our worship, through trust, through obedience. My offering to God as an expression of my love for him is obedience. That's it. It's my expression of trust because that covenant love only gets experienced with trust. Does that make sense? That's what hesed means. And so if that's the case, if love and worship are together, God must be our reference point for what love is. And he also has to be our reference point for our experience of being loved. All other attempts to answer that question outside of him actually become a worship of something or someone else. So the biblical language would be, it would be an idolatrous pursuit. It's a worship of some other God, whether we build a God to it or not. And so that's why this question of identity and worship and love is so important. And we know the story, but in the beginning, humanity is deceived by Satan, enticed to distrust God's goodness, and they break the bonds of loyal love. And you can read again about this in Genesis. We know this. I know we tell this story over and over but what they're doing in that moment, what humanity do, is doing, what we are doing in that moment, is choosing, the, choosing ultimately to search for love, which we need because we were created in it and we were created for it. Searching for love, meaning, and wisdom apart from communion with God. And when we do that, we need to find it somewhere. And so we begin to look for love on our terms, not his. That's why love and worship are so connected when we talk about it. Our search for love is a necessary one. And so it leads us to all kinds of places and all kinds of people and to all sorts of ideas and ideologies to worship. Humanity's pursuit, if you read the biblical story and you believe it, is ultimately a pursuit of one searching for love in all the wrong places, seeking to return home. I love what um, St. Augustine says. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is our pursuit. Fender says this, we instinctively long for spiritual connection with God because he has created us for himself. God is love. We are made in love, by love, for love, and so we yearn continually for completion in perfect love. You capturing what is going on in the story Every pursuit becomes a pursuit of worship, a pursuit to receive and discover love. And as C.S. Lewis said a number of weeks ago, not that he said it a number of weeks ago, we, we quoted it a number of weeks ago. He's dead, unfortunately, but has left some wonderful things for us to read. Um, he said, idols always break the hearts of those who worship them. And so every other pursuit apart from God and his love actually becomes a pursuit of an idol, whether we call it that or not. And actually, ultimately, it always leaves us empty. Always breaks our hearts some way or another. And you can kind of follow that through in every political ideology, every answer to the human question, every attempt of our own to meet a need and a desire and a longing for love outside of God, at some point over time begins to empty us and enslave us and it does not fill the hole that we are looking for. So what are we today? <laughs> what are we today? Well, like we talked about, the, the, the answer to every question in the kingdom story is the good news of Jesus and his way. And so what does Jesus answer for us? 
in this. Well, Jesus is God's divine servant, comes as the perfect human. He comes as the image of God, the image bearer, the way we were intended to be in the beginning, to demonstrate what a true, true human should look and be like. And then he goes a step further, and as God's servant, his task is to deal finally and powerfully with the things that have distorted us, with sin and evil in the world and the ways in which we have been misshaped by the brokenness around us, and to free us from the ways that we've been entangled and enslaved and to enable us once again to receive and give love, to return to our due north, to our center point, to remind us of who we are really, and to expose in that moment, what he does is he exposes the lies and the deceptions that we've drunk in, maybe from religious ideas, maybe from cultural ideas, maybe from our own ideas that aren't actually him, that aren't actually his reference point for love and have promised much, but actually pillaged and stolen and beating us. Remember the story of the shepherd? The good shepherd is the way in and out, but every other idea actually is a thief that comes in by another way and actually ultimately robs, kills and destroys. And so Jesus comes as the antidote to that and he answers this question of love. He reminds us that you are the beloved, that is who you are, that is how you were created. And though you have been broken and beaten by this choice to go your own way, I am here to reconnect you and to restore that in you. I love what Fender said. He says, before Jesus began his ministry, the Father, Heavenly Father, affirmed him in his, ide- his identity as fully and completely loved. Therefore, Jesus could love. He did his ministry and gave his life even to the point of death for us because he knew that the Father loved him and he completed, completely trusted the Father's love as a reference point for his identity. So what he's saying here is that Jesus starts his whole ministry with this return to I am the beloved. And out of that posture, where, where you might know the story in Luke chapter four, Jesus is baptized and heaven opens, John says, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes to descend on him like a physical dove. But then the, the, the father says in that moment, according to, 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 to Luke, that um, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved. And then from that place, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tested by that. If you're the son of God, if God has your back. And then he does his ministry out of that place because he is submitted to God as his lover, as his, and he is the beloved, he is able to minister out of that. And then the same is true of us. So Jesus models a way to do life as the beloved. And as we put our trust in Jesus, as we choose to make him our reference point for life, as we, we choose to make him our rooter as such, we learn to trust the Father's love again. That's what that's about. It's, it's a learning to be accepted in the beloved. Ephesians talks about this, Paul. We discover that we are inter- eternally and uniquely loved by Jesus. And our becoming like Jesus is actually a becoming the beloved. Doesn't that sound wonderful to you? Like, doesn't that, like, not like water to a thirsty soul? Here's the thing. That is wonderful, but it's not easy. Because we resist his love still. 
We have been misshaped and distorted and enslaved, all of us in different ways, some of us more than others, often not our fault, just by the brokenness in our world, sometimes by our choices, sometimes by our idolatrous pursuits, sometimes by just trying to survive in the world. Some of us, we've made our bed with many lovers and it's left us beaten and bruised and bankrupt. All of us experience this in some way. And though we've put our trust in Jesus and become awakened to love, the love of God, it is a process of becoming more and more like him and learning to receive his love, to allow him to break down the places of resistance in us, to reform and reshape the ways that we've learned to go for love that aren't him and that aren't his reference point, to begin to let him break the deeply shaped messages in our life that actually aren't in keeping with what he says about us. And that is the process of being, becoming whole that happens and starts through the Holy Spirit when we say yes to Jesus. You might call it a renewal. And because we live in this world, we constantly need that. We constantly need reminded daily even of this reality. John says it this way. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Which we read and think, oh, that's terrible. And it is. But it's that when we go after things that aren't of God, we're actually not in keeping with his kingdom. We're operating in another kingdom. Then he says this, but the reason the son of God appeared, like the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that word destroy is actually, uh, it's the word literally to unbind or to loosen or to untangle or to dissolve or to untie. Isn't that beautiful? That actually Jesus came to untangle the works of the evil one in our life, to allow us to be unbound from the things that we've given attachments to, so that we might learn to receive and give love and be free to do that. And so this process of disentanglement from the attachments of our lives are are the ways that we've been enslaved to other things that we worship, to idols, to patterns of thinking and doing. Some of them are religious, some of them are cultural, some of them are our own ideas about the world. But we've worshipped false ideas and been enticed to give our devotion. We've been deceived into distrusting God as good and as the lover and become enslaved in an entanglement of disordered desires and longings. And God sent Jesus to do damage to that and to bring life in a fresh way. And so the issue of love and being loved is an issue of worship. Make sense so far? Three things that are important. And I, I could go totally into the cultural stuff of this, but I, I don't, it's not my intention this morning. I love that kind of stuff and it's helpful to think that through. But really my intention is that you in a personal way and me and us together will experience something of his love. So that's my intention. But the issue of, of being loved and knowing what love is, is an issue of worship. The question is this, who, whose terms will we seek love on? His or ours? That's the question. Is he, is he my reference point for love or am I it? And so when it comes to actual love and being loved, these are the foundations of God. He, he's like, I have unconditional love available for us, but it's on his terms, not ours. 
That's why it's about worship. It is a loyal, surrendered, trusting love. His idea of love is so different than ours, so different than our world's ideas of love that when we want to receive his love, it's coming into agreement with the reality of love as he created us to be, as he is. Love on, on our terms is actually, if, if we are the ones that decide what love should look like, then actually what we're doing without realizing it is we're actually attempting to submit God's reality and truth and version of what love is to our version of reality. We're saying, God, I get you've got all sorts of ideas about love, but here's what I think it should be. And so you need to kind of do it on my terms. And so you have to love me this way, or you have to, I have to experience love in this way, or unless you do it and agree with these certain things, then it's not love for me. But actually part of being loved and becoming the beloved is submitting our ideas of love to his and saying, okay, you, you are my reference point for love. But here's the beautiful thing. Our, like your grade was probably way lower than anybody else would put it. And the way God loves us is actually way more profound and way more extravagant than we will ever put. You think of the prodigal son and we'll look at that in future weeks. You know, he comes as a slave thinking that if I come and say all these things and just enter into this relationship again as a slave, maybe God, the father in this case in the picture, will agree with my version of how I should be loved because of what I've done. Because I don't deserve anymore to be loved as a son. So maybe I'll just be loved and looked after as a servant. But the father says, no, that is not my reference point for love. I am love. This is how I love you. And he loves them as a son. So we have to submit our ideas of love. Love must be in his image, not ours. Christ is the example of what love looks like, laying down himself as God and becoming like human flesh, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, wholly submitted to his father as if his life was not his own in some ways. And that was his expression of love, agape love. We have all sorts of ideas about love, but part of it is submitting to God's ideas, submitting to God's image. And that's a difficult thing for us in this culture because our image and our self-identification is such a strong idol. And I don't want to get into this, but just like that idea that we are the ones that get to determine what love is and who we are. And yet when you come to Christ, Actually, that is a laying that down. In, in all our things, whether that's a political nationalism, whether that's to do with um, something else, it's, it's a laying down of that and saying, actually, I am loved because God has created me uniquely. And that, that is it. And he begins to restore that in us. And I know that's a complex conversation. And then the final thing is love is loyal, not disloyal. And that's the Hesed love. In, in other words, God's love is exclusive, not an open marriage. Like we again find this really difficult in our culture because our culture tells us that love is multiplicity and it can be across all sorts of versions. And I'm not disagreeing with some of the ideas, but when it comes to loving God, it's an exclusive love. He is not willing to share his bed with lots of other ideas and lots of other thoughts and lots of other sources or people. He is, 
His loyal love, love is expressed through deep and mutual trust. And of course, any of us who are married, that is what we sign up to, rightly so. And that is what love in a marriage is. It's loyal love because we understand that that's important for this love to be right and to work. And so God's love is deeply inclusive in that it's available to all. But when we respond to his love, it is a all-in kind of response. Does that make sense? Those are three things that that are important. Bender says this, and I'll, I'll finish with this quote, and then I want to give us some space just for you guys to respond to that on a personal level. We long for a love that ultimately only God can satisfy. Any substitute satisfactions are a delusion, a false intimacy, an idolatry that leads to addiction and slavery. Looking to someone or something other than God to meet our deepest needs and desires is idolatry. We give power to who or what we worship. We become who or what we worship. And so love and being the beloved and worship are connected. Does that make sense? There's loads of ways that we can respond to that. And in our religious kind of upbringing, our immediate go-to is like a, a... like a visceral removal of the things that are unhealthy in our lives. And that's important. Like God, Jesus said that, like cut off whatever is killing you because it's, it's not good for you. And I'm not saying that God might not bring stuff to light in your life that he wants to do that. But here's, here's the, the heart of God in this, I believe. The first thing he does is expose the ways in which we've been misused by sin, brokenness in the world. And that is not a condemning thing. It is not... It is not to judge you as the beloved. It is to judge the thing that is harming you and remove it and disentangle it from your life. And so in a religious setting, we've made that a shame thing. So anything that is exposed, even that word exposed feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's like that is a shaming moment. In the good news of Jesus, that is not the case. His only intention is to open up a way for you to see the things that are entangling your heart and to break it through his power and bring freedom. Always his heart. But sometimes that means showing us the ways that we have actually been misshaped, the ways that we've devoted ourselves to things that aren't there, showing us the things underneath that are hurting and harming us and that are preventing us from receiving his love completely. And so that's the first thing he exposes it. Then he dethrones the idols of our life. And that process is not just showing us what they are, but it's then providing the grace and the power to free us. And so it might be something that we've just through, through life learned, that is the way that we get love or, or we've, we've just we've maybe become addicted to patterns in our life. Maybe we've got negative thoughts that just are hard to shift and we just, they're, they're wedded into our being and our bodies. We can't even figure out how to disentangle them. And God not only exposes what they are, he doesn't leave us alone in that. He then comes and he provides through the Holy Spirit a power to dethrone them, that is to unbind them from your life and to remove their ruling effect so that he might step in as Lord. And that's sometimes quite a powerful and profound and painful thing, but it is on to freedom and healing. And then he invites us into the process and he says, okay, what I want is you to come to me and embrace and receive my love. 
And that is a moment of surrender. Sometimes we find that difficult because we have all sorts of ideas and thoughts about whether he can be trusted, but he can. And so he says, come to me and learn how to receive my love. And then the last part is let me help you activate practices in your life. We'll talk about this in future weeks that allow me to continually love you day in, day out. So that's a process he takes us through. And I want to give us space to do that. Gabe, do you want to come up? That'd be amazing. Why don't you stand with me? And then I'm going to give you some ways you can respond.